0: Welcome to the U.S.-China Insights podcast from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, featuring short interviews with leading experts on timely issues affecting the U.S.-China relationship.
1: I am Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today is Dr. Wei-Ping Wu, Professor of Urban Planning at the Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation, and Director of the Urban Planning Master's Degree Program at Columbia. She's also a Fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you, Margot. It's
0: always a great pleasure
1: to be part of the National Committee and any of its
0: activities.
1: Let's start with some context. Please describe the history of Chinese urbanization since the establishment of the People's Republic and especially in the reform period? Right, so in
0: 1949, China was very much still an agrarian society and even so right around 1979. So we're looking at less than 10% of population in urban areas in 1949. And between 1949 and 1979, not much urbanization actually took place and particularly given the policy of you know, grow industrial uh, production, and particularly away from the coastal areas, the bigger cities also did not grow very much in terms of size, but 1979 and reform period really unleashed a torrent of forces, and those forces include migration, industrialization, and globalization. Of course, that's also a, you know, a push factor and to some degree, fiscal decentralization. So all of this has really together propelled urbanization in China. And so between 1980 and 2010, so that's 30 years, the percentage of China's population who are considered urban uh, have increased from about 19% to about 51%. And today that percentage is around 54%. But there's, you know, a little bit of a, Uh, Complexity in there as well, those with urban hukou actually is a little bit less, it's about 36 percent, but overall China right now is about the same
1: level as the average of the rest of the world. You mentioned the hukou. What exactly is the hukou and what has changed in the policy towards the hukou? Mm -hmm. since 79 or 80. Right, so hukou, as you all know, uh, is quite unique to China, although the former
0: Soviet Union had something very similar to that. Mm -hmm. It it was called the internal passport, which is meant to be for social control, uh, you know, control mobility of people from place to place. Uh, So hukou was institutionalized in China around 1958 and so within the hukou you have people of agricultural population or non-agricultural and then hukou also denotes where you're f- registered you know the place of hukou so since 1979 particularly since 1983 hukou has become a little less important although still important less important in terms of food provision so farmers were able to sort of take care of their own food provision so they were able to move more to, away from home. But today, hukou still is very much connected with the provision, let's say, uh, education for kids going to public schools and certain kinds of jobs in the state sector, as well as certain types of housing. So primarily hukou now is connected with the provision of social
1: benefits and services. A couple of aspects of China, well, many aspects of Chinese urbanization are quite striking. But one thing that I think maybe doesn't happen in other places is the urban village in Chinese cities and the so called new villages in the countryside. What are these villages and what do they tell us about China's urbanization?
0: Yeah, so. So Chinese urbanization, as I just mentioned, happens so quickly and <laughs> rapidly and, um, and you see two types of processes of urbanization. One is people move, right? Uh, you know, millions of people move from countryside to the cities. And the second is places become urbanized without moving, right? What we call in situ mm-hmm. urbanization. Mm-hmm. And so urban villages are exactly sort of this intersection of both processes. Um, and do
1: they still have a rural hukou?
0: Yes, and they still have rural collective land ownership. In fact, I, I brought one of your colleagues to uh, Zhejiangtsun in Fengtai District. Right. So that's precisely so that land is still collectively owned. The village. Even though it doesn't have any any farmland, it has control of the land. So they can rent the land, they can build um, workshops, and there, that location and many of these locations became really affordable and attractive options for housing, for migrants. The new villages in the countryside is much more recent, actually in the last 10 to 15 years. These are also not too far from big cities. And this is a byproduct of many provincial efforts to consolidate small plots of rural land Mm -hmm. into larger um, agricultural land that can be cultivated uh, with higher productivity. You know, basically, uh, more industrial scale. Yeah. So what's happening is the consolidation involves not only agricultural land but also natural villages where villagers used to congregate, but they are scattered all over the place. So they would move them together into one large plot, and the housing would be built very much like you know, urban housing—high-rise apartments, and they would be called some kind of neighborhood complex a residential complex. And then the farmers would be allocated—actually, they're compensated by uh, local governments uh, through receiving two to three units of apartments—new apartments. And the real interesting part is many of these villages live like urban residents, right? Um, in, this, in this complex, but they still have agricultural hukou. They still belong to the villages. They're all good examples of the so called incomplete urbanization because if you look at it, either the lifestyle or land ownership types are not completely sort of over to the urban side. And so, um, yeah, I've sort of done work on. Both and those, only really. in
1: China would these be called villages because they're 30, 40, 50,000 people.
0: That is correct
1: vi- <laughs> Yes. That speaks to the,
0: the, the complexity of defining urban. And given the higher density and large number of population in China, it takes a lot more people to qualify as urban, right? right? But they are also called villages because of the, I guess, the heritage they carry with them. Uh, that, um, uh, And then the elements of that heritage that remain to be functioning.
1: In your paper, when you wrote about it, it seemed in the, the, the new villages, I was going to say the rural villages, but that makes it even worse. Um, people still behaved, mm-hmm. and I should use the present tense, behave like rural people. Mm-hmm. Their their day-to-day behavior is not necessarily what we might think of as the city life. Right. Yes, and it's particularly for people who are a little bit older yeah. when they moved. Um,
0: and also has to do with many of them don't really have jobs right right, right. so their rural livelihood uh, you know is bygone you know era uh, today uh, so 20some years ago when this kind of um, transition happens there used to be policy of turning these people into urban hukou uh, uh, holder and even allocate them jobs and that really stopped uh, more than 10 years ago so um, they really reminisce a lot about traditional ways of life, the way they celebrate weddings and uh, even funerals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the social relations that they carry with them very much remain to be rural, and that really takes quite a long longer time. So that is part of the complexity we see in China in terms of urbanization, its rapid pace that is very… Um, Compact time frame uh, brings a lot of sort of complexity in understanding the impact of urbanization on people in their daily life, in their um, uh, livelihood. Uh, and so um, it's kind of interesting the 2013 new urbanization plan in China now talks about urbanization of people. Not just urbanization of land, which was always, you know, sort of how we just see it as, you know, you turn a city into a, you know, turn a county into a city, you're urban, but the people are not necessarily are urban in their way of of life.
1: That leads very nicely into my final question, because we're running out of time. China in the last, since 1979, things have changed so fast and in such major ways. You look at the US, we didn't hit our more than half urban population point until the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So we are established in 1776. 18th century, 19th century, we are basically agrarian. Mm -hmm. Gradually become more urban. Whereas in China it's just so fast. (coughs) Excuse me. What what do these differences in the process of urbanization tell us? Mm -hmm.
0: Marco? you're speaking of a kind of a similar, what we call the S-curve, that many countries go through. And that is very low level of urbanization for a very long period of time, and then takeoff at this sharp curve. And the primary driving force of the takeoff is industrialization. So if you think of United States, end of 19th century, you know, industrialization, and then now we're tapering off because there will always be roughly 20-30 percent people who don't want to live in urban areas. So U.S. urbanization level now is about 80 percent, so it hasn't gone on increasing for a long time. It's sort of been steady since Second World War. Yeah. And so for China, I think the, 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 the later takeoff uh, stage, you know, of course has to do with uh, how late industrialization happened. But it also I think there's some artificial element. You know, We know between 1949 and 1979 there was a lot of industrialization, right. but there was huge under-urbanization that because of policy framework that didn't allow people to move and didn't allow more resources to be invested in, in particularly the large cities, right? So slow, and so shh, 1979, there's a rapid increase, and as I mentioned, the torrent of forces really promoted this much faster pace, right? And you couldn't find any other country where industrialization, Globalization, migration, and decentralization, particularly in terms of in China, is fiscal decentralization allowing local governments to have more autonomy in raising money, and all of which really sort of propel this higher pace. And really, in a way, I think one of you, you know, sort of you can sort of think about urbanization with Chinese characteristics to some extent uh, that Chinese urbanization does resemble in many other places right in terms of the transition that migrants and uh, rural peasants have to go through but Chinese urbanization also has um, a lot of unique characteristics and that which actually generates really good opportunities for scholars to think about newer theories and particularly in terms of what we call state-led urbanization So the very, Uh, sort of infrastructure-led and very much uh, sort of um, developmentalist states at very kind of uh, important uh, stages, guiding both development at individual city level as well as regionally. You know, we know that in Cultural Revolution days, it was the inner parts of the country that received a lot more resources. Now it's all going back to the coast. A lot of it, you think about special economic zones, think about coastal open cities, were all very conscious policy steps that have led to the patterns that we see today.
1: All right, unfortunately we've run out of time because I think we could keep going for quite a while. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, Margot, for this opportunity.